It says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And Father, we humbly ask now as we continue in our worship, as we've sang and prayed and given to you, Lord, in different ways we ask now, help us to give you our attention, to give you our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength and to let you speak to us what it is you would want to say to us and what we need to hear through this portion of your word that you've inspired and given to us. So, Lord, you know what we're asking. Prepare us each accordingly. Bless your word, and may we experience the Spirit of God ministering and speaking to our hearts through it this morning. And we ask together in agreement in Jesus' wonderful name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the main things, obviously, there's been a great deal of discussion about with these major hurricanes that have been coming through of late has kind of been using the subject of how much impact that they would have. Are they going to be a Category 3 or Category 4 or 5? And what's the wind speed? And where are they actually going to make landfall and so forth? And it's a great interest how much impact they're going to have. And the word impact really speaks of how much significant effect or influence their activity is going to bring. Uh, and in light of that, I think our text today really addresses to us as Christians how we might, if you could say, have impact as God's people by our activity, what we do with our lives as we're living here on this earth, that God may use us to have impact, that is to have influence, to have effect upon people around us and to have impact and effect upon situations. And I see two ways predominantly described here in this last section of chapter 5 in James that that can be done that we as God's people can have impact the first one which should be glaringly obvious is through a ministry of prayer that is by believing that there actually is value and purpose in spending time praying in talking to God and asking God to do things for people and in situations. And the second way I see described in verse 19 and 20 there that we can also have impact is you might say through a ministry of rescuing and restoring erring people. Through rescuing and restoring erring people. That is having enough concern in our heart for people that we see, that we know maybe who are struggling in their life and actually doing something to help them actually doing something to assist them, to try and bring them back into a place where their life maybe is where God may want it to be. Now, the background, remember, as we studied this section last week, James has just recently been instructing about the value and the benefits of prayer, particularly to bring help to people that are suffering, to bring healing to those maybe who are afflicted in their bodies with illness or disease. And now, on the topic of prayer... 
he just continues on. And again, what is prayer? Well, in the most simplest form, a lot of times people may have some confused ideas of what prayer is because of what they've seen or maybe been exposed to. Prayer is just simply talking to God in simplicity, in sincerity. It's not necessarily reciting a, a, a memorized you know, set of phrases or chants or you have to be in a certain position. Prayer is just talking to God. God, in a simple way, in a clear way, directly from our hearts, the things that matter to us. So on the topic of prayer, James now continues in verse 16, right where we left off, having said, confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another that you might be healed. He then says, look at the text, verse 16, this great statement, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. God here by his Holy Spirit speaking through James, I think likely gives to us the most powerful way that we can have a impact for good while we live here on this earth. And I want to say in advance, I'm going to I'm going to sort of camp here a little bit longer than I will in some of the other verses. So don't start panicking, thinking, oh, no. Is this going to be like a second service and are going to be here all the way through dinner time? I promise you that's not going to happen. But I need to say, I think my strong conviction is that this is probably one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful ways we can actually have impact while we live here on this earth. And that's very simply by exercising the ministry of prayer. He says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What does that mean? Well, other translations of this same verse, let me read them to you. One translation says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Another translation renders it, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. The Holy Spirit here, I believe, is leading James to give to us a wonderful promise of God really regarding two things. And this is how I want to kind of discuss this as we unpack it. First of all, what is effective prayer? That should be a question maybe we should ask. I mean, if I pray, I, want to, I don't want to be ineffective, right? So what is effective prayer? What does that mean? How do you pray effectively? So what is effective prayer? And then secondarily, what is the effect of praying when we pray what is the effect what really is it what kind of effect can it have when we pray effectively and what effect will it have on people and situations and I think these are things that we should be interested in so let's talk about first of all what actually is effective prayer what does it mean to pray in an effective way that can produce wonderful results well the answer is in our text there he says first of all the fervent prayer of a righteous man. The fervent prayer of a righteous man. Well, what is a righteous man? A righteous man is a person who's living in right relationship with God. And the foremost way that we can do that, the Bible instructs us, is by coming into a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Not by being a religious person, 
Not by necessarily saying, okay, I need a little religion in my life or so I'm going to attend church maybe once a week or going to maybe read a, a, this you know, daily bread devotional every morning and, and, and try and do some good deeds and become a little bit more of a religious person. Listen, the word religion, its original meaning, relengary, meant to relink. The idea behind religion is somehow I realize I'm not right with my creator, so I'm going to try and relink with my creator by religious efforts, by doing works and, and rituals and, 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 and things that I think somehow will put me back into good graces with this creator that I sense I'm not maybe in right relationship with. Listen, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. There's nothing that we can do. The Bible teaches that God doesn't want us to do religious works and be a religious person in our practice, but to have a living relationship a loving personal relationship with the God who created us. And that is only possible through his son, Jesus Christ, because the Bible teaches that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And sin causes separation. That is, we've thought things wrong. We've said things don't wrong. We've done things wrong. The one thing that we all share equally is we all have our fair share of failures and mistakes. And it doesn't matter if you are the most grievous evil person on the planet who's ever lived in history or if you are the most moral, upright, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't run with girls who do. Perfect person in your estimation. You've still failed once. You break the law one time, you're a lawbreaker. A lawbreaker. You violated the righteous, holy standard of God. So every person has the same need and we need to recognize that we are sinful and we don't deserve to go to heaven. We are sin. Our sin separates us from a holy God. Something needs to be done with our amount of sin and we all have some measure of sin, but one sin's enough to keep you out of heaven and to send you to hell. But yet God made a way for us. In his love for us, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live as a man, as a human. He lived the sinless, righteous life that none of us can ever live, established the perfect standard of humanity so God could accept the work of his son. And then Jesus, living the righteous life you and I can't live to give us access to heaven, he then took the punishment that we deserve for our sin. As he died on the cross for our sins, he took the payment and the penalty and the punishment of you and I's sin. Dying for our sin, then raising again the third day, he is a living Savior who now can be the bridge, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And it's by coming to Jesus Christ and putting our trust in him as the one who needs to save us, as him as the one who needs to be Lord of our lives, by believing that what he did in his work is sufficient to let me be forgiven of my sin and be pardoned as we sang about even this morning and to be able to have relationship with God through the living person of his son, a person, the person of his son, he can forgive our sin and he can give to us the righteousness of God because Jesus himself is righteous, sinless, holy as the son of God and yet the son of man, fully divine, fully God and fully man at the exact same time. He can give to us what we need. So as a divine judge, God graciously, if we come to Jesus, recognize we're a sinner and we believe upon what Jesus has done for us personally and we receive it in a personal way for ourselves, God as a divine judge removes our debt of sin. But here's what's better. He then deposits into your spiritual bank account the righteousness of Jesus himself. This is how we become a righteous man or a righteous woman. 
as we receive the righteousness of God that Jesus gives to us. Romans 3 says that he promises us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe that we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Jesus. So if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and when you accept Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior, you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved from your sin so that you can go to heaven, so that you can have a relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us God doesn't just remove our debt of sin and forgive us. He also gives to us all of the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ. So you and I are now in Christ and in a sense God doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you in his son, one with Jesus, robed in the righteousness of Jesus. So when God looks upon you in your position judicially, God sees you as completely righteous with the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ. That's a great position to be in. As someone who's a failure and a sinner and with great amounts of guilt and mistake in my life to know, yes, I did those things and yes, I still fail. But God doesn't look at me in those failures, in those sins. He looks at me by my faith in the finished work of Jesus, in the righteousness of Jesus. And that righteousness of Jesus allows me to have a righteous standing before him, which also gives me, just like Jesus, direct access right to God the Father. Because I come to him in the righteous favor of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm accepted in the same way Jesus is accepted. Romans 5 says it this way in verse 1 and 2. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? That's through Jesus. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access through our relationship with Jesus. It's the standing of righteousness that lets us be favorably accepted before God. That's why Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. That is confidently, you can confidently, no matter how well you've performed or what your past has been, you can confidently come to the throne of grace because you're accepted in Jesus Christ if he is your Savior and Lord and you're in him. And that access and acceptance to come directly to God, listen, is what lets us pray very effectively. Because you can go right to the throne of God. You don't have to jump through three hoops or try and get things back in good you know, balance with God by doing a few good works to kind of atone for your bad. No, your faith in Jesus lets you come directly to the throne of God and to be accepted just like the son of God himself because you're now a child of the living God through your relationship with Jesus. That is why Jesus encourages and instructs us to ask things from the Father. That's why Jesus said, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock, the door will be open to you for whoever asks receives, whoever seeks finds and whoever knocks, the door will be open. And then Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask? We have these phenomenal statements, these bold assurances of Jesus, how we can pray effectively because of our righteous standing before God and our access directly to the throne of God that we can come right into the presence of the king of kings himself and be accepted even as a child is accepted by a parent. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified. 
He then says in John 16, Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask in the, fa uh, the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now listen, we've talked about this in our study in the Gospel of John. To ask in the name of Jesus is not to use Jesus' name as some lucky charm that we kind of rub the genie by just saying in Jesus' name and therefore that means God's going to do whatever we want. To ask in the name of Jesus means that we ask in full alignment with everything that Jesus is, who he represents as our king, just like someone would come in the name of King Arthur, we come in the name of our king. We want his desires. We want his kingdom to be advanced. We believe in who he is and what he wants. So to pray in the name of Jesus is to ask in alignment with his will and his heart and all of who Jesus is, but when we come to God in that right relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, the Bible still, Jesus' very words, give us some staggering promises here. Jesus says, ask. You ask in my name. Be in right relationship with me. And you ask in my name and whatever you ask, it'll be given to you. That would be blasphemous if Jesus didn't say it. I mean, that's a phenomenal promise of God that's set before us there by the words of the Lord himself. John writes this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. You should put this in your notes if you don't have it. It's a great Bible promise on prayer. It says, this is the confidence that we have in him, that is in Jesus. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have the petitions that have been asked of him. Again, incredible assurance to us you say, well, okay, that does also say if we ask anything according to his will. How do I know if I'm praying in accordance with God's will? Well, let me give you one of the simplest, clearest ways. The best way to know as a righteous person you are praying and asking according to God's will is to ask things in accordance and in alignment with the word of God itself. The word of God inspired by God's spirit, is, this is the will of God. So if we keep our prayers and our desires and what we ask in alignment, listen, with the truths of Scripture, with the principles of the Word of God that are laid out before us in Scripture, with the promises of God, with the nature of God, if we keep our prayers and our requests in alignment with these things, we can be really confident that we're likely praying in accordance with the will of God and that God's going to hear and God is going to act. Now, the balance to that, James said back in chapter 4, verse 3, is he said, sometimes we ask and we don't receive because we ask amiss to spend it on our own pleasures. So if we ask wrongly, God's not going to grant us whatever we want like a cosmic genie. But when we ask in alignment with the will of God and our prayers get in alignment with God's will because we're a righteous person and we want what's right before God, something really powerful happens. All of God's power and resources are put behind that. Now, another way to pray effectively as well, and this is important as we consider this, is to avoid patterns of ongoing sin. How can I pray effectively? Well, again, as a righteous person positionally, that doesn't mean I have the right to start living unrighteously and think that there's going to be no consequence to that. The Bible is very clear. If we're going to pray effectively, we need to avoid ongoing practices of sin because sin causes separation. It interrupts relationship. 
And there are biblical warnings regarding hindrances to prayer and praying effectively. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The word regard means to cherish, to value. The idea is if I cherish and value some sin that I am unwilling to let go of, to stop practicing, I'm not willing to deal with it, and I cherish that sin more than I do being in right relationship with God, then it says God won't hear. That's a strong warning regarding our effective prayer life or ineffective prayer life. There's also a very strong exhortation to husbands. 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands, likewise dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. And then he says, that your prayers may not be hindered. Interesting, God doesn't warn wives about that. But he warns husbands that we are to relate to our wives in a proper way and make sure that we treat them and care for them with tenderness and, and being sensitive to who they are and, and dwelling with them with understanding, knowing them, serving them properly. And he says, lest your prayers be hindered. Now listen, I'm a father, I understand that. Somebody doesn't treat my daughter right. Look, I, I may only be a buck 38 soaking wet, but I'll kill you. Somehow. One bite at a time. I don't know why. Eventually. God loves his daughters. So as husbands, God says to us, listen, do you want things to be right between me and you relationally? If it's not right between you and your wife, you better get that right. You better treat them properly because God says things won't be good between us if they're not good merrily. Again, these are warnings regarding sin causing our prayer life to be altered, hindered, or ineffective. Now listen, I understand. We all fail periodically. That's not the subject or issue that the Bible is discussing there. It's describing occasions where we continue in patterns of unconfessed sin or cycles of sin where we just won't stop doing something that we know is disobedient to the word of God or wrong because when we do that, the Bible says God will disregard our prayers in some ways. And there'll be an ineffectiveness to our communication. And why does God do it? Personally, I think just to get our attention, to awaken us. Something's not right here. And so in a sense, he kind of becomes silent to get us to recognize that. So important, if we want to pray effectively, we also need to walk in righteousness and, and live in purity. Another element of how to pray effectively, if James says there, verse 16, the effective fervent prayer is even found very interesting in that word verse 16 circled the word prayer itself and here's what's insightful is the word the holy spirit gives james to use there for prayer is not the typical word that's most often used throughout the new testament regarding prayer or praying which is typically a term that just describes general communication the actual word that's used there in the greek refers to making specific requests uh, the idea there is directly asking for something. You're asking specifically for something. And this is what he uses when he talks about effective praying. Again, the point being not just rambling on in maybe a bunch of nervous spiritual speech or verbiage or Christian lingo that sometimes can make its way into our prayer lives or asking even just the idea is not even just asking for things generally or generically you know God bless the world or, or God save unsaved people instead the idea would be you know God save this person and and specifically asking God 
to bring salvation to that person and to work in their life or, or, or Lord, please work in my life. Well, that's very general. Instead, telling God exactly what you mean. Lord, I'm really selfish. Would you please help me to stop being so selfish and, you know, this way or, or Lord, I'm really struggling with forgiveness. And, and again, specifically telling God, praying specifically. The, the idea here is kind of like not beating around the bush, getting to the point and just telling God directly what's on your heart and mind as if somehow he doesn't know it anyway. And just telling him directly, specifically, what you're really concerned about or what you're asking, being detailed, asking God to do exact things in a straightforward way. You might say getting to the point of your request. Just tell him. Ask God specifically. Ask precisely. Why? Because God wants to answer specifically and precisely. And if you ask precisely and then God does it, you'll really be blown out. Yeah, Lord, I just... I'm, I just, I need you to, and you ask specifically, precisely, and then God does exactly what you asked in a very specific way where you realize that couldn't have been a chance thing. Like God blessed the world and maybe if something good happens, you go, yeah, yeah God blessed the world somewhere. Uh, but you actually see it and God shows you I'm the living God. I love you and I love you. I listen to you, to you personally. I'm running the whole world up here, but I heard what you asked. I gave you exactly $12.49. I heard what you asked. Exactly what you asked. How marvelous when God does this. You know, if we were given the privilege to have access to a, a king or a ruler on earth, certainly I think we would express our concerns very efficiently. We wouldn't ramble in the presence of a, a king or a world ruler. We'd be very thoughtful in how we would communicate. And I think we should remember that as we approach the throne of God and pray thoughtfully. Maybe sometimes when we pray personally or when we pray together, to, to slow down, to allow a quiet moment, to think and pray thoughtfully, to let the Spirit direct what we should pray and what we should ask. And let me just say, especially, I think that's all the more critical when we pray collectively. When we have prayer meetings or like this week where we have the nights of prayer, that, that it's different than praying personally when it's just you and God praying alone together. There's something very different. We want to pray in one accord, in agreement, if we want to be effective when we pray together. Jesus said, I say to you, if any two agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father. But Jesus says, as you agree together, you're unified in spirit, you're agreeing together, amening together. So that's why it is important that when we pray together collectively, we are thoughtful. We are specific, and, and if I could, if you'd pardon a, a moment of extra duration on that, let me just perhaps provide a few suggestions because we, we do try and make an effort to pray together as a church here. And I want to see us pray effectively when we come together for prayer meetings. And please, I, I don't mean any of this critically. I mean it constructively that hopefully we can pray together effectively. Hear my heart on this matter because I think that this is an important thing. I think as we seek to do this, we should therefore beware of when we pray together, we should beware of certain things. Like, for example, praying long, rambling prayers when we're praying together. But instead, we should remember, wait, this is a family meeting here. You know, have you ever been maybe with a group of people and one person is just dominating the conversation? And they're just talking and talking and talking. And at a certain point, you kind of realize, I'm never going to get a word in here edgewise. I don't even feel included in this conversation. And you just like walk away from the conversation. 
because you just realize that person just incessantly keeps talking. So I, like I'm losing interest and I'm not really, and so you kind of, and I think that happens in prayer sometimes. Instead of us agreeing together and amening and have, instead, I think one person can start to pray a little too, you know, lengthy. And then all of a sudden people start like checking out mentally and, and, and even spiritually sometimes. And they kind of lose connection of being in agreement and putting their faith together with what's being asked. Let me say as well, I think in relationships, we should be careful when we're praying together of ever using the listening ears of other people to maybe share a little bit of a spiritual message sometimes or an insight. Listen, I've been a Christian since 1992, you know, uh, uh, 25 years praying in different ways here, there. I've been part of different churches and ministries. And sometimes in prayer meetings, it can almost become a platform where somebody almost rather than praying and just talking to God and asking God things, begins to, whether they even realize it consciously or not, start to use the moment to use it as a platform to kind of teach maybe because they don't have a pulpit or something and all of a sudden they're praying and you're thinking this sounds a lot more like you're you know you know giving a message and lord we thank you that in this verse and that the greek word of that word is and and all of a sudden it's like well, are you teaching a message to us or are you are you utilizing our listening ears here to share a spiritual insight that you're listen nothing wrong with that but this is prayer we're talking to god here or even just beginning to pray. And Lord, I thank you that when I got up this morning at 8.30 a.m. that I had that egg breakfast. And Lord, that was a really good egg breakfast. And I thank you for that. And Lord, I thank you that then when I read Matthew chapter 5, you told me this in verse 6. And, you t and, and you're telling a story of what God... Listen, no, I'm not saying those things are wrong, but it, this is a prayer meeting. The idea, we're praying. Ask something. Ask God something. This is not the setting for doing these kind of things. And sometimes we have to just be conscious mentally of these things to be alert of that reality. Again, not being critical, if we want to pray effectively, that's what we're talking about. We want to pray effectively. And even in regards to as you're praying, I would encourage you, when you pray together, you know, my, well, my praying together with my wife or another brother in the Lord or praying in a group with a prayer meeting, let's be sensitive not to quench the spirit. Sometimes we're praying and, and sometimes what happens is we're praying about something specific and you can sense the Holy Spirit is directing maybe to really cry out for salvation or to be praying for revival or praying for a specific thing. And, if, and then all of a sudden, somebody like just abruptly prays about you know, Lord, help the eagles win or something. I mean, they just say, they just take the ship in a totally different direction. And you can almost sense like, wait a minute, the Spirit was directing us to pray in a way and all of a sudden, not saying it was wrong, you wanted to pray for that, but again, we're not being sensitive to the Holy Spirit sometimes. And we can interrupt perhaps how the Spirit's directing us to pray. And I probably already said enough and offended everybody in the room. So uh, anyway, let's move on. One other thing that I just, he says the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much the word fervent speaks of what eagerness eagerness it speaks of passion it's a word of of not being indifferent it's the opposite of that a person who's in right relationship with god is going to have the passions of god in their life they're going to know what matters the heart of god and so therefore they're going to be passionate about prayer and passionate in prayer and they'll be walking in the spirit and romans 8 says the holy spirit can even help us to pray jude says praying in the holy spirit Paul, writing to the Romans, says that we should be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. How much more when we're serving the Lord and praying? God, help us not to pray, can I say this, like mechanically, routinely, that when we pray, 
There would be no heart behind it. When we pray, there should be a heart behind what we're praying. This is important. These are eternal, spiritual, life-changing things that we're asking the God of all creation. We should have a passion when we pray a fervency. And let me say, that does not mean to pray fervently. It does not mean that a person needs to get hyper-emotional. It doesn't quantify fervent prayer that you got to you know, get worked up into tears and start you know, weeping as you're praying. That doesn't quantify fervent prayer. It doesn't mean that a person needs to be fervent in prayer that they got to start shouting real loud. And I've been in prayer meetings and that happens as if God somehow is deaf. And so you got to shout louder to, and shout louder and because if you shout louder as you're praying, listen, that just makes very around you praying very uncomfortable a lot of times. You can pray fervently without having to be hyper-emotional. The idea is just a passion. I, I, I think God wants us to be passionate. Let me say, maybe a little fire in our prayers to Him. That, that He senses our sincerity and that we burn with concern for wanting to see God move or, or act. We're not just praying with our mind. Our heart's in it, man. And it matters to us. And if it would matter that God would respond to the fervency and the sincerity that he sees in my heart about this issue, that I'm going to give him every reason why to be moved because he senses that I'm fervent about this, that it matters deeply to me. And, and if that's what moves the heart of God in some sense, and he sees that he's pleading with me about this, they're crying out to me regarding this that that fervency of our prayer would make our prayer very effective. And James says in the latter part of verse 16, if we pray in an effective way, look at the effect. He says that kind of prayer, it avails much. It accomplishes a lot. That kind of prayer changes things. It's impacting. It produces wonderful results. Remember Jesus, when he spoke a prayer, spoke of mountain-moving prayer? The idea is... Prayer that can move incredible barriers, asking God to do what's impossible, move a mountain, asking God to bring change. And when we ask of a God, listen, with whom nothing is impossible and with whom all things are possible, that can avail much because God can do mighty and awesome things. The promise is true. God doesn't lie. He has the power to perform anything we ask of him if it be his will so we should ask him that way the question becomes honestly this searching our hearts do we believe this do we believe it well, he's, well, that's a neat bible verse do we believe it do we believe it with the same sincerity that we believe that Jesus saved our soul from sin do we believe that because if we believe that it would influence our value and priority we put on praying personally, on taking advantage of opportunities to pray together with our, our spouses or our families in situations when they arise or praying collectively when God's people assemble to pray. And I will say this, I firmly believe the devil believes that. I believe the devil knows James 5.16b very well and that's probably why one of his most effective efforts is to cause a disinterest in prayer among God's people and a distraction oh Christian concerts he'll pack out thousands of people in an auditorium and they'll pay 50 bucks for the concert too the devil goes oh let's have another concert that's what they need we can get 50,000 people in a concert let's have a prayer meeting oh start up the distraction cycle get up the disinterest cycle and see I think the devil's not dumb 
And I think we as God's people need to realize this is where things avail much, where much change. God can move. God can work. James, knowing this, being a man of prayer, gives us an example in Elijah. He says, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. And then he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So James says, listen, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he says, let me illustrate. And he gives to us the illustration of the prophet Elijah, how in a powerful way God used his prayer to bring forth incredible results, to bring forth incredible impacting things on the earth. The record described here is in 1 Kings verse uh, chapter 17 through 19 i encourage you to read those chapters and familiarize them yourself with them but notice the first thing that james points out in verse 17 regarding elijah this powerful man of prayer who had effective fervent prayers that availed very much he tells us first of all in verse 17 elijah was not a superhero sometimes we read the bible and we make certain bible characters like spiritual superheroes Oh, man, I mean, just, wow, Paul the Apostle or, or Peter or, I mean, I'm not diminishing what the, but James says here under the inspiration of the Spirit, Elijah, he says, this man, he was a man with a nature just like ours. What's he trying to say? He was a human. He was a human. He put on his robe and his sandals the same way every other person did. There was no spiritual superpower that he had. He wasn't no, you know, a special person. He says he was a man with a nature like us. That is, he, he had the same experiences, thoughts and struggles. He had doubts and discouragements and wrestled with things like we all do. And from what we know about Elijah in the Bible, he had no religious background, no pedigree, no formal training in any way. He seems to be a man, however, who had a close relationship with God and knew the word of God. And in his life of obscurity, in his relationship with God, he lived during the days of wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel who introduced horrible idolatry into the nation. And there was sin promulgated throughout the nation. I mean, this was a, a group of leaders that pushed forth more immorality in a time period in the nation than any other before. The spread of immoral behavior, people were turning away from God. They were murdering the prophets of God. People were forsaking and abandoning God. And God spoke about these realities in his word. Deuteronomy chapter 11, we saw and we studied together where God said, if you earnestly obey my commands and, and love me and serve me, then God said, I will bring the rain on the land and season and your crops will produce. And God said, but if you rebel, if you turn away from me and disregard my word and serve other gods and enter into idolatry and sin, then God said, as a result of that, he says, I will shut up the heavens and there will be no rain. Now think about this in regards to what James is saying here. I think Elijah knew the word of God. He knew how to pray in alignment with the will of God. And he, knowing these verses, knew what people were doing and that God would withhold the rain to get attention of people and awaken them spiritually. So his heart's moved in concern over the sin and the rebellion against God. So he starts pleading with God, God, this is, this is wrong. Lord, our land needs change and revival. And, and, and God, he begins to pray. You said you'd withhold the rain to get people's attention. 
that you would do it to awaken people that something is not right and the struggle on the earth would cause them to look to you in heaven. So he starts passionately praying what? That God would honor his word. And so he starts crying out to God knowing this. And he feels so confident that God will answer. He then goes and prophesies to King Ahab that God's going to stop the rain. So he goes to Ahab, 1 Kings 17 tells us, he says nothing to brag about his prayer life. Only James tells us this in hindsight hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. He doesn't go and say, listen, I'm a man of prayer and I have been praying that God will do this just so we make sure who gets the glory here. He just walks into Ahab's presence, 1 Kings chapter 17, and it says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there's his only inference to prayer, there shall not be dew or rain for these three years on this earth. And he proclaims God's going to withhold the rain because he was so confident God was going to answer his prayer. And James tells us here in verse 17, this man prayed earnestly it would not rain and it did not rain for three years and six months. His earnest prayer, just a, a typical man, he earnestly asked the God who controls all things to act and show his power and God did it. He received the answer. God withheld the rain for three years and then verse 18 says he then prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. So after a series of events, Elijah, the Bible says, was moved again regarding this time to pray that God would restore the rain because now there was a drought on the earth. Things were dry and difficult and the land had become famished and God prompts his heart that he wants to send rain and Elijah starts to pray again. And he starts to intercede and he asks God to act and revive the desolate conditions on the land. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, we see him there confronting and rebuking the people for the error of their sin. And he says to the people, how long will you falter between two opinions? If Baal is God, then serve him. But if Yahweh God is God, then serve God and stop fluctuating. And choose who you're going to serve. And he challenges the spiritual condition of the people and he calls upon God to show his power. And before God sends rain, first, remember, God sends fire upon the earth to show his power. And then we're told this in 1 Kings 18, verse 41 to 45. Elijah then said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there's the sound of the abundance of rain. So he went to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Listen to what it says. Bowed down to the ground, put his face between his knees and said to his servant, go look toward the sea and he went and looked and said there's nothing master seven times he told him go again go again go again and it came to pass the seventh time that he said there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea so he said go up to Ahab tell him prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you and it happened in the meantime the sky became black and the clouds and the wind and there was a heavy rain Again, the Bible gives us that picture. James gives us the commentary by the Holy Spirit here that that is an illustration of what effective, fervent prayer looks like. He's down his, on his knees. His, his face is between his legs. And, and he prays and he says, go look. A servant comes back and says, nothing. Nothing happened. He doesn't say, well, all right, I'll pray one more time. And he put pray, go check again. There's still nothing, boss. Well, I prayed about it twice. So I, I, that's, I prayed about it twice. No, it says seven times he just keeps praying and begging God and beseeching God and believing and praying and, and persisting in prayer. And the seventh time, 
after fervent, passionate, persistent, continual prayer for that, knowing it's what God wants, all of a sudden this little cloud shows up and he's so stirred with faith, he sees a little cloud, he says, the storm's coming. God's about to bring the rain. And God answers his prayer and the land experiences the renewal and the revival of the rains coming upon it. And can I just say by way of application, ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what our land needs. Not physically. Our land needs revival and renewal spiritually. Our land needs, by the prayers of God's people, crying out for renewal and revival, that God would open the heavens and would pour forth the rain of His Spirit upon this dry spiritual condition of our land and the famine of the Word of God and the things of God and that the rain would bring spiritual awakening, renewal, Revival, as we would refer to it as. And again, we don't have to be special people. James purposely says here, he was just a man. He was just a man. But a man who was willing to pray. And again, my encouragement, God is willing to use us, but the question we have to ask, are we willing to pray? Are we willing to pray? Because that's how those kind of things happen. That is the way those things Transpire. Well, we see one final way we can have an impact. James says in verse 19 and 20, If anyone among you, brethren, wanders from the truth, someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So here he describes the ministry, as I said, of rescuing and restoring erring people. Being concerned and burdened. He says here, brethren, that speaks of God's people. If anyone among you, Christians, wanders from the truth, the picture here is someone, what well, we might say, backsliding. That they walk away from the truth himself, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. That they walk away from the truth of God's word. They begin to wander, and we all have the potential, all of us do, to get off track as God's people. We're prone to wander. We can do this. And this clearly refers to a person who strays from following Jesus, they're no longer walking in accordance with the truth of God's word. And the Bible says here that when that happens, and maybe there's even someone in your life right now or a few that come to mind who've wandered from the truth. They once were walking close with the Lord. They were once a part of the fellowship of the people of God. And, and, and they're struggling. They've wandered from the truth. I don't care what the reasons and dynamics, but they've wandered from the Lord. They've wandered from living in the truth. When we see that, we should be desirous to want to be used by God to help. He says here, turn them back. And that begins with a burden in our heart that we actually care that they have wandered and they're not in a good place. And that burden then translates into, guess what? Prayer. We then start to pray, Lord, would you want to use me to help turn him back? Lord, would you want to use me to help turn her back? And next we begin praying then for them. Lord, whatever it takes. That's what I pray. Whatever it takes to turn them back, to bring them to repentance, to open their eyes, Lord, to humble them, to, to convict them. Lord, do whatever is needed to turn them back. And again, why do we pray, pray, pray first? Because the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And it may just be, my favorite is, when all you do is pray. And sometimes they don't even know you're praying for them. And then all of a sudden, here they come turning back. 
And you know God did it. And it don't matter that whether you were the one praying. And sometimes I'd rather God turn them back through my prayer than me have to talk to them. That's more awkward and difficult, right? Who wants to get in that? I, I have enough. Yeah, I'm not looking for confrontation. Are you kidding me? That's the last thing I want to do. So as we pray, our prayer may be enough that's needed. And if nothing else, it helps us navigate what to say or not say under the Spirit's love and leading if God does want to use us to talk to him. And maybe that's a part of the process. That we, as we're praying, would be sensitive ourselves. They would be more prepared. God would give us a heart of love and not condemnation and criticalness. And like Galatians 6.1 says, when someone's overtaken, you who are spiritual restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. Not, well, I'm going to tell you, brother. What do you think you're doing, man? Not in this pompous attitude. Not as condescending spirit, but in an attitude of sincerity and gentleness and heartbrokenness. That, that we're concerned. I'm worried for you. This is not a good path you're on, man. I'm worried where this is going to lead in your life. And then in love, we begin to reach out to them. And that's hard to do. But the motivation, James says, is know that if you are used by God to turn a sinner from the error of their way, you'll save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It may be a hard thing at times. But if you step into that willingly making yourself available and God uses you to turn someone from the error of the way, he says you've spared someone from the deadly consequences of sin and its problems and pain and the destruction. And listen, God's in the business of sparing people from sin and its pain and problems. And he says, and you also will be that one who covers over a multitude of sin maybe in their life because you show them, despite their mistakes, God's grace and mercy. And here's why this is important because typically when people fail, we all know this because we've all failed. Typically when people fail and make mistakes and one of the biggest reasons they don't turn back is they feel what? They've wandered too far. They've made too big of a mess. What they've done is just too horrible. And so in guilt and condemnation, they may think everyone, even God, is done with them, has written them off. So how wonderful that when someone who has the heart of God, we reach out to them in the love of Jesus to show them God still loves them and there's a doorway of restoration. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, that may be huge for us to show someone that that's failed. That may be the most impactful thing you could ever do for that person to be the one person who doesn't give up on them. That can be hugely impacting. Question, do you want to have an impact on people and situations? Be serious about laboring in prayer and be someone who reaches out to people who failed.